Well, as we uh, continue to work our way through Exodus, I don't know if you feel it, but I have felt it as a preacher. Um, since we opened this book together for the first time in January, I think every sermon has had some point, some crucial juncture that's looking forward and saying, it's coming. The plagues are coming. God is going to act. The battle lines are being drawn. God is building this tension. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And here we stand, this time right actually on the cusp. It's coming. We're right there. The pieces are all in place. This is about to go down. Next week, we're going to start into the plagues. Um, We're going to look at them over a series of three weeks. They actually are carefully organized by the Lord, by Moses as he writes into these three packages of three plagues each, ending with the last one. And so we're going to work that through the next three weeks and then culminating at the 10th plague, the Passover. And that's just really cool how that lines up. We're going to spend Easter talking about the Passover. Really encourage you if you're interested in that, it's going to be a great time sitting down to a Passover meal. All the, we'll do our best to get all of the pieces there and, uh, and talking about what did the Passover mean? How did, it, how did it foreshadow Christ? So put your name on the sheet at the back. We're just really interested to know how many people are interested, um, but that's going to be a, a great time. I think it's really cool how the Lord has lined those things up. Uh, but this morning, chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. So I invite you to turn with me there. If, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, just slip up your hand and one of our ushers uh, we'll grab you a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Uh, it's all about God's Word and not my Word. And I want you to be able to see God's truth in front of you. And, and maybe that's so that you can say, eh, that's John's idea, but this is what the Word says. Uh, I'm good with that. I would encourage you in that. And uh, may, maybe as you're sitting there with God's Word open in your lap, you need to say, John, you missed this. It says A and you said B. What's going on? Maybe, maybe I have a reason that I, I read it that way. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and so that's healthy for us as a church. Um, but uh, Exodus 7, 1 to 13, this is the final confrontation before it all goes down. Um, Moses went into Pharaoh for the first time back in chapter 5, and remember how that turned out. He comes in saying, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh arrogantly responds, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? Let the people of Israel serve me all the more. Increase their labor. Now Moses and Aaron are back in the throne room of Pharaoh once again. And and these verses that we're going to look at this morning uh, are, I think, if it's not sacrilegious to say, I think it's Yahweh's best impression of Babe Ruth. Um, you, You may know the story. Babe Ruth, I hope you know, the greatest baseball player ever to play the game. Uh, late in his career, though, his, his dominance started to wane. He, he started to, he started to kind of go downhill, and he became the object of mockery by many. And 1932, his third to last season, Ruth was up to bat for the New York Yankees. Game three of the World Series against the Cubs. Everything's on the line here. They're tied 4-4, and uh, he had two strikes already against him. It, the great Babe Ruth striking out again, the old wash-up. He was being mocked mercilessly by the Cubs players and their fans. Uh, in an interview the next day, he said this, My ears had been blistered so much before in my baseball career, I thought they had lost all feeling. But the blast that was turned on me by the Cubs players and some of the fans penetrated and cut deep. And some of the fans started throwing vegetables and fruit at me. So you get the picture And then in this iconic moment that would go down in history, the crowd hushes as Babe Ruth lifts his hand and points out over center field. The next pitch comes and Babe Ruth's bat meets it with a crack. And that ball flew 440 feet over the furthest part of the center field wall, over the normal seating, deep into the temporary seats they had set up for the World Series in what would be deemed the greatest home run of all time. That hit broke the deadlock in the game, spurred the Yankees on to win the game and then the World Series. Uh, and, and, and these verses here this morning is like Yahweh 
pointing up over that center field. This is how it's going to go down. You watch and see. Here it goes. I'm going to hit this out of the park, Pharaoh. There will be victory. You watch and see what I'm about to do. You mock me now. Wait and see. I will have victory over all the earth. I will have victory over all evil. So let's jump into this text and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Looking first at at verses 1 to 7, we see the Lord declaring his victory over all the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they both spoke to Pharaoh. This is the Lord declaring, I will have victory over all the earth. And, and he starts this, let's just pick up this little this tagline at the end. We get the ages of Moses and Aaron. Moses is 80, Aaron is 83. Why, why does he tell us that? Who, who, I think the point there, and, and I don't want to be offensive to anyone, the point is they're old. These guys are old. They should be retired by now. This is not a couple of young studs. It's not a couple of warriors coming into Pharaoh's presence. Like Moses has got the walking stick because he needs it because he gets tired. He's got to lean on something. It's not about them. And, and look what the Lord is about to do through these two guys who, who are nothing. He can use anybody. And through them, he declares he will have victory over all the earth and And you have to understand the way they understood gods in that day. It was a very territorial understanding. So there were the gods of Egypt, and even more specific, there was the god of the Nile and the the god of the the fields and the god of fertility. Um, But if you traveled out to another country, you would leave behind the gods that you had where you grew up, the gods that you worshipped, and you would want to then appease the gods in that country because clearly you left that other god behind. That's just how they understood it. And so for Yahweh to tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, where Pharaoh actually presented himself as a god, and he says, I will lay my hand on Egypt. That's a big deal. Yahweh's saying, I'm not like these other gods. Remember this, I am who I am. I am not not to be compared to anything you know. He's saying, I'm not just the god of the Israelites. I'm not just the, the god from over there, I'm the God of all the earth. I will have my way. And the Lord says the strangest thing then to Moses and Aaron. He warns them, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. It seems so backwards. We already saw a glimpse of this back in Chapter 4, verse 21, um, we talked about this last time that the kids were in service with us. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see to do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. And the point made then is the point made here. It's about God showing his power. It's about him displaying his greatness and his might. And so this whole thing is, is God introducing himself. It would be like if I wanted to prove how strong I was by arm wrestling someone. Remember that? And if I were to arm wrestle a small child and win, you would not be impressed. That would not win your awe. The more impressive a person that I do battle with and beat, the more impressive my power is shown to be. And so 
as the Lord comes up against Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth at the time, he's saying, that's not enough. I'm actually going to strengthen Pharaoh and make him a greater opponent than he even is so that I can display more of my glory. That's why chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Pharaoh just folds right off the bat. If he just sees the the, the serpent turn, or the the staff turn to serpent, or the the water turn into blood, and he goes, Whoa, crazy, take him. I'm done. I fold. Um, The Lord doesn't show his glory to the same magnitude. So God is actually strengthening Pharaoh's opposition to himself so that he can display more of his glory. And we looked at that back in chapter 4. Um, we didn't go too far in. And, uh, and I left you with two basic questions that I would promise, that I promised we would answer uh, once we got here into chapter 7. And uh, so we need to deal with this now. And the first question is, what exactly is going on? What exactly is the relationship between God and Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh's heart? And the second question is, is this fair? Like, really, is it okay for God to do this? If God hardens Pharaoh's heart to make him oppose him more, is it okay for God to judge him for that? Neither of those are simple questions. And and I think often we would just like to shy away from that and just say, you know what, we'll just, let's move on. But I think if we read God's word carefully, and we trust him and take him at his word, I think these answers, I think these questions are answered. So let's hit these straight on, and let's see if we can get some clarity on this. Um, First, what is God actually doing? And uh, I kind of went down the rabbit hole and lost an afternoon buried in books on this one. Um, There's so much noise about this relationship of Pharaoh hardening his own heart, the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, and who does what first and who does what more, and, and the relationship between it. And so I just need to go right down to the basics, tear it all down, and, and just walk through what does Exodus say about Pharaoh's heart. And so I had to diagram it out for my own sake. Do we have that? Oh, look at this. I'm sorry, it's ugly. That's my computer skills. Um, so maybe I should have had Marissa fix that. Oh, she's in the nursery. Um, but uh, this is the best I could do to just kind of map it out for you. So let me walk you through this a little bit so you can see. Um, don't try and write it down. If you want it, email me and I'll send you a much more uh, broad uh, diagram. Um, there are 18 times in Exodus that talk about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And, and those are the verses list, list in the left-hand column. And uh, I just kind of put the plagues in there so you can kind of see the flow of the story as it goes along. Um, the next column is who is the subject of the verb. We've got to go back to grammar school here. Um, subject is who's doing the action. Who is it the one that is not the one who is hardened, that's the object, but who's doing the hardening. And, and so I've listed that and then the next column and kind of color-coded it. And so you can see five of those times are without a subject. Those are the gray ones. There's no one hardening Pharaoh's heart. It just states simply Pharaoh's heart was hardened or was hard. Um, three times out of the 18, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Those are the, are they red? Yes. Um, Those are the red ones. And then the remaining 10 times, it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Those are the yellow ones in that middle column. Um, Now, alongside that, it's worth noting um, the asterisks is, is, yeah, the gray ones, and there's one in the red. Um, those are times when there's no subject, there's no one doing the action, or even one time it's Pharaoh doing the action, but it's followed immediately by, as the Lord had said. And so it is actually still pointing back to God's plan in this, God's sovereignty in this at some level. And yet there's more going on than that. Um, we're going we're gonna to just chase this right down. There are actually three different Hebrew words used, used uh, for, for harden. Um, that's the third column the last column here. And and they're also color-coded. They often match the person speaking. So they look like they're maybe the same, but they're not. Um, The green one is the one used here in chapter seven. Um, It's only used there and it's difficult. I will make Pharaoh's heart obstinate, difficult, hard. 
The red word Pharaoh uses uh, every time that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. This is the word that he uses. Uh, and, and it's a word I told you to remember. Uh, it's the word kavod. It's the word glory. Um, remember, it can also mean heavy or weighty. It's, so it's, it's not out of the range of the word to translate it hardened. But, but there's a significant implication here. He's making his heart glorious against God. This is a battle for glory, and we're reminded again, this is, a, this is a war over worship between Yahweh and Pharaoh. That's what's at stake here. And the last word, the yellow word, uh, is the one that the Lord uses eight out of the ten times, and it's hetzak, and, and it means to harden or to strengthen. And so we look at the progression of this from, from the top down. Um, you see, Twice the Lord predicts, this is what I'm going to do in the future. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I will make Pharaoh's heart difficult. And then three times into those first plagues, we're simply told Pharaoh's heart was hard. That's just the state of it. Twice as the Lord said it would be. And then the second plague, and again in the fourth plague, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. He takes what was hard already, and he's the one that makes it harder. He himself is making himself glorious in opposition to God. The fifth plague, we're simply told again that his heart was hard. The sixth plague is the first time the Lord actually acts. He begins to do what he said he would do, and he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Seventh plague, Pharaoh hardens it again. But then look what happens as the battle heats up, as things intensify, and that's how the plagues work. They kind of start small, and they get heavier and heavier. Um, Then six times straight through plagues nine and ten, and right through the massacre at the Red Sea, the Lord is hardening, hardening, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so you could say uh, the emphasis is not that the Lord put the sin or the hardness in Pharaoh's heart. That's what Pharaoh wanted. Pharaoh's heart was hard and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And yet the vast majority of the emphasis through the story is the Lord predicting it, the Lord saying it would be, and the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart, fortifying him in that position. Um, this was the Lord's plan, and, and, and he made it come about. Pharaoh wanted to exalt himself above God. He, he wanted to fight God, and God says, okay, but if we're going to fight, it's going to be a cage match, and you're not going to leave until I'm finished with you. If you want to go down that road, you can, uh, but I'm going to see to it that you go all the way to the end. Time and time again, we're reminded that, that Pharaoh's persistence in his sin is because the Lord hardened as the Lord said he would. So I think it's helpful to look at this and to realize, I think there's a false dichotomy as we ask, is this Pharaoh's will or is it the Lord's will? I think the answer is yes. I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think the Lord ordained it from history past that he planned it and he said it would be. And I think Pharaoh did it exactly how Pharaoh desired for it to be. They go together. Pharaoh is free. He's making decisions. He has a hard heart and he's hardening it even more just as God ordained it and planned it to be. The next question is, is it fair? If the Lord planned this, ordained it, if the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, is he just? Is it right for him to then punish Pharaoh for it? This makes us squirm. This is a question we got to deal with because our culture is going to push this on us. If we're going to ask that question, let's get right to the root of it. We need one more verse in play here. Chapter 9, verse 16. Beginning of plague 7 right before things really heat up and get ugly, the Lord says these shocking words to Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How do you think Pharaoh even became king in the first place? How is it that he found himself in this position with this opportunity to oppose the Lord? The Lord raised him up. The Lord put him there. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets them up. God did it. Romans 13.1, there's no authority except that which is from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Pharaoh existed. Pharaoh had authority. Pharaoh was in the position he was in because, because God. 
And God put him there for this purpose. So then is Pharaoh guilty? How can he be held responsible for simply fulfilling God's plan? And that's exactly the question Paul asks in Romans 9. And he uses Pharaoh as an example because it's the perfect test case. And so we just want to walk through some of this. If you want to turn over to Romans 9, we're going to spend a little time there. I'll have it on the screen behind as well. But Romans 9, chapter 17, um, Paul quotes from Exodus 9, 16. And he says this, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Bingo. You nailed it, Paul. That's exactly what we're saying to you. That's exactly our question. How does God still find fault? Because who can resist God's will? If God planned it and God saw that it would surely happen, then how can Pharaoh be held accountable? And the first thing I think as we seek for an answer to this question, we need to deal with the fact that this question is even here. That, that Paul acknowledges this is, this is the question then that needs to be asked. Paul finds it necessary to bring this up. One of the most common ways that, that people would resolve this today is to say, no, 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 no. You got this all wrong. God gave Pharaoh free will and Pharaoh in his free will brought this about. God had nothing to do with it. God would prefer to have stopped it. God is not responsible here. Pharaoh is responsible. He did it completely on his own. But if that were the case, Paul wouldn't have this problem right here. This wouldn't be a, a, a tension that he foresees, but, but he does. And then if that question were to come up, maybe wrongly because of some confusion, it would be so easily dismissed. And, and Paul's next word would be, no, you, you're confused, right? So how does God still find fault for who resists his will? Everyone resists his will, right? God's not responsible. That's a silly question. But he doesn't say that. He brings this problem up and he wrestles with it because he anticipates that it's the right question to ask. And then Paul answers, but I don't think he answers with the answer that we would like to hear. He, he's not gentle. Look at verse 20. Start back at 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And here's his answer. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Ouch, Paul. That's just mean. Like... You just compare me to clay? Like, that's demeaning. No way. I am a one-of-a-kind, valuable individual with infinite worth. And Paul says, actually, you're dirt. And doesn't God have the right to do with his dirt what he wants? And, and then you say, well, the, this, this, this analogy breaks down because we are greater than clay. So that's true. We're like this much higher than dirt on the scale of value. Um, and the potter is like this much greater. But the Lord is infinitely greater. The, the gap between the potter and the clay is significantly smaller than the gap between the Lord and us. And Paul says, doesn't God have the right? Of course he does. The creator God. To take one person whom he created from dust and make him a tool for the display of his glory through the pouring out of his love and his mercy. And to take another person and make him a tool for the display of his glory through the pouring out of his wrath. He has the right. We just got to stare that in the face and own it. We have to be okay with that. Now, Paul is not saying this isn't difficult. 
He's not saying that there aren't pieces of this puzzle that are hard to fit together. And if we want to chase this philosophically and ask questions, there's a lot of questions to be asked, but, but we have to start with the truth on the face of it. God has the right. And there's a categorical difference between saying, God, I see this in your word and I trust you and you are good. You are the definition of justice. You are sovereign, but I don't understand how. That's a very different question than saying, this doesn't meet my standard of what is just and good and fair, so I will not accept it. Too often we think far too highly of ourselves and far too lowly of God. We don't make the standard. We don't draw that line and demand that God matches up. And yet I've so often had this conversation and reading through this text of Scripture, trying not to add my own words, but just to read Paul's words and have had people yell back, I will not worship that God. It's heartbreaking. Because they're saying, I will not worship the God of the Bible. I will not worship a God that doesn't meet my definition of what he should be. What are you saying? I am God and God must serve me. God must meet my demands. That's one thing if we want to go to Scripture and talk about who God defines himself to be. But when God reveals himself clearly, our, our job is not to answer back. It's to say, okay, God. God has the right to do with people as he chooses for the display of his glory. Some will be Israel, some will be Egypt. That's hard. That's hard to wrestle with. But but there's the fact of it on the face of it. And the really telling thing, I think, is that this question is only ever asked in one direction. We ask, how could God condemn Pharaoh for his wickedness? Why on earth does that surprise us? Why is that what makes us question? Pharaoh rebelled against God. He opposed God. Yes, it was God's plan from the beginning. Yes, God raised him up for this purpose. Yes, God hardened him in that. But it was also Pharaoh's heart to do it. Nobody sins against their own will. Pharaoh experienced God's righteous wrath. Pharaoh got justice. A, B, and C line up here. But we conveniently overlook the fact that Israel also rebelled against God. They opposed God. Even after he had brought them out from the Exodus, they continued to, to build golden calves and to rebel against God and to say, why can't we go back to Egypt? And we've rebelled against God. We have sinned against God. And even after our salvation, we continue to fight against Him and sin against Him. And we do not get what is right and just and fair. Where's the outcry now? Now who screams up and says, No, God, you may not give grace to those wicked sinners. They deserve hell. That is right and just. Nobody questions justice now. So the problem is we were never so concerned about justice as we were about our own pride. Pharaoh got justice. The wicked receive what they deserve. God didn't have to put rebellion into Pharaoh's heart. It was there. He didn't have to change the direction that Pharaoh was running in. He just gave Pharaoh more of what he already desired. So thankful for Mike's sermon last week. That was so rich. I was so blessed by that. And the reminder that grace does not leave us running down the track that we were on. Grace doesn't let us go the way that we wanted to go. Grace cuts in on the lost and on the unworthy. It cuts in on those who are rebelling against God and changes their hearts and transforms wicked rebels into beloved sons. It's grace that's not fair. It's grace that should leave us scratching our heads saying, God, this doesn't make sense. We line this up. We deserve wrath and we're not getting it. 
That's why God raised out Pharaoh. That's why God displayed his wrath against Pharaoh. So that in displaying the horror of his wrath against sin and and giving Pharaoh exactly what he deserved, displaying what his justice looks like, he could simultaneously display the wonder of his grace in saving the unworthy Israel as he overlooked the sin that they had that deserved the exact same thing. And he made them his beloved people instead. And that's exactly where Paul goes next as he goes through Romans 9. Listen, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, This is exactly what God says over and over again through Exodus. I'm going to make known my power. Has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of his mercy whom he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. That's what God's doing. It's the, it's the display of His grace. And that's what God promises here in, in Exodus 7. That He's going to win the victory over this sinful world. That He will be gloriously and decisively victorious, destroying all those who oppose Him for the good of His chosen people, His children. And he's going to display the horror of his wrath on Egypt so that Israel will understand the wonder of his grace. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? We should follow him. Let God's people worship me. The world begs for our worship. It demands our service. It's a battle for glory. Whatever you see as most glorious, whatever captures your heart is what you'll run after. And we're bombarded constantly by these messages from the world saying, find your joy here. Find your joy in Hollywood. Find your joy in food. Find your joy in sex, in music, in alcohol, in marriage, in kids, in in building your own ego. And when we seek after these things over the creator, because we value them more. And it feels risky to, to pass on all the promises of sin to finding our our joy here and now in these physical things. I can can touch them. I can take hold of it. I know that if I go after that, I will have that moment of pleasure. Rather than trusting that God is better, believing that he outshines all of them, that he offers a joy incomparable to anything this world has to offer. We need to see grace. We need to see it more fully in contrast to the wrath that we deserve. We ought to be overwhelmed in our hearts with the wonder of his glory as we look at that contrast between the wrath of God that we deserve and the grace that we have been given. And knowing that God will decisively overcome. Everything that challenges his glory will be destroyed, will be burnt up. He'll wipe it out the people, the government that oppose him, this worldly system that tries to steal his glory. Not only will he destroy it in the end, but he's sovereign over it right now. That should give us this unwavering commitment to strive after his glory, to seek after that, to be amazed by him, and then to, to live a life that shows that, that he's better. Don't don't hedge your bets in this world, right? Don't don't try to live with with one foot in the Lord and one foot in the world. Just in case the Lord doesn't work out, I'm still going to try to get, you know, the best things out of this world now. Now, there will be victory over this earth. It will be defeated. It will be wiped out. Nothing will last. And what will be the end result? It's verse 5. The Egyptians... And the whole world in the end will know that I am the Lord 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring, about, bring out the people of Israel from among them. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. There will be a great separation from the people of God and the people of this world, and the world will be destroyed along with those who love it. Don't hedge your bets in this world. Don't, don't try to hang on to the things here. Be overwhelmed of the glory of God. Find your joy there. And not only will there be victory over this earth, but he goes on to say there will be victory over all evil. This gets to the power behind Pharaoh. This brings us behind the curtain, as it were behind this sinful world, and and God declares he will have victory over evil. Verses 8 to 13, let me read that for us. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the Lord gives them these instructions once again. Go into Pharaoh. And verse 10, now they're again into Pharaoh's presence into his throne room and they do exactly what the Lord had commanded and Aaron throws down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his servants and it becomes a serpent but Pharaoh's not so easily impressed right he he calls in his magicians and they throw down their staffs and they become serpents as well your move Pharaoh I got I got power too these guys can do it now to realize first of all the Lord intentionally begins this small and it builds and grows. And and we'll see that with the magicians as we go on, as they try and succeed and succeed and then begin to fail. But this always intrigued me. Moses is supposed to be doing a miracle and the magicians mimic it. They do the same thing. I read a couple commentaries that they very easily explain, well, if you take a, a snake, there's a trick you do by holding on the back of the head and pinching a nerve there and it will become rigid and it will pass even for a, a staff until you throw it on the ground and it, and it will revive. And that's, that's how they did it. Um, I, I went to the source, the authority. Uh, I went to YouTube and nobody's doing this trick today. So I'm just skeptical, maybe. Um, but I, I kind of thought I would find it there. I was all excited, like, oh, cool, but it's not there. Maybe it was some kind of snake charming that they were able to do. Um, maybe it's just a sleight of hand. Maybe it's just a, a really good parlor trick. I, I shared a dorm room uh, with a guy named Derek Selinger, who's actually a really well-known magician now. He could make like coffee tables levitate, like to the point where I had friends who were like, this guy's, I think he has demonic powers. And, and he would just laugh and say, if you knew how simple this was, you would kill yourself laughing. Like, it's so foolish that you believe that I'm actually lifting this table right now. He would never tell me how he did it. But um, maybe that's what they did. Maybe they just had some good sleight of hand. The other option is that there is demonic power involved. Uh, It would make sense at this point in history. I think all eyes are on Pharaoh and Yahweh in this showdown. And uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, When the Antichrist comes at the end of time, um, that he will come by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders... So it's possible that that's what's happening here as well. That there's some some demonic work producing these false signs and wonders. And and yet I think the thing that gets my attention in the end is that they're still false. It's still done by their their secret arts, which I think could easily be translated their trickery. It's 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 a mockery. It's a mimicking of what God does. And just in case there's any doubt about whose miracle is legit, the staff of Aaron, in the form of a snake, slithers over and swallows up the other snakes. That's pretty definitive. That kind of settles the argument. Now, we've seen similar to this already. The the Lord 
turned Moses' staff into a serpent in front of the burning bush. Uh, And then he tells Moses to take that staff to the people of Israel and do it again there. But on both those occasions, um, they were performed as a sign that was intended to bring about faith. See what God is doing. Trust him. This is different. That's not what's happening here. This is a sign of judgment. This is a statement of the Lord's dominance and power. And it's interesting, there's a significant change in the language used. And this is a a growing frustration of mine that that translators aren't giving us clues when there's different Hebrew words and they use the same English word to translate them. I think it's it's just not helpful. Um, The other two times, the staff turns into a snake and it's called a nahash, which is just the regular Hebrew word for snake. That's what you'd expect. But here before Pharaoh, um, it's a new word. The staff turns into a tanin, which, which is an unusual word. And, and it still could mean just a simple snake. That might have been what was there on the ground. But the word has much broader implications, and it, and it draws us in. This word is used almost as a mythical way. And tanin in, in Job and, and in Psalm 74 is translated as sea monster. It's related to the word leviathan. You hear the tan on the end, leviathan, tanin. Through Isaiah and Ezekiel, it's translated as dragon. It carries this idea, again, of this kind of almost supernatural, almost mythical evil. Uh, When when Ezekiel uses it, um, he actually uses it in the context with Egypt as this metaphor for for evil. Um, Ezekiel 29.3, he says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon, Tanin, that lies in the midst of his streams. The snake represents paramount evil, the perfect symbol of the forces of of darkness, of evil, just as Pharaoh and Egypt do. And here, Aaron turning his rod into a tanin is, is the Lord saying, I have power. I have control over. I have tamed. I rule over. I will have victory over evil. All of the evil in this world, is it's like the staff in my hand. And I make it come and I make it go. Pharaoh doesn't stand a chance. The the powers that lie behind him are under God's control. And Pharaoh's servants come and they fake this miracle. They try to show, hey, we we have power too. We can do this too. We're on the same level as this Yahweh, this God that you proclaim. Why do you think Aaron's serpent eats the other ones? He could have chased them off. Could have just bit them and killed them and left them for dead, could have maybe just revealed the trick that they did or undone the trick that they did. But, but when those serpents are eaten, what becomes of them? They're gone. They're destroyed. They're, they're devoured. There's nothing left. That's the way Yahweh's victory will be over evil in the end. Isaiah 27.1 In that day, the day of the Lord, the last day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the the fleeting serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon, the tanin that is in the sea. It's not about sea monsters and snakes. It's about evil. God will wipe it out. He will overcome Tanin translates into Greek as drachonos. You can figure that one out. It's the dragon. Where do we see the dragon in the New Testament? Revelation 12 just just brings this all together. Verse 9, that great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So you ever wonder the, the serpent in the garden, was that actually Satan? Here it is, that ancient serpent. And he's thrown down to the earth and his angels are thrown down with him. So this is a description of that first rebellion when Satan is cast out of heaven, cast to the earth where he wages war against the people of God, against the church of Christ. But that is a war that he, just like Pharaoh before him, will certainly lose. God will have victory over evil. He controls it. He will swallow it up. The victory began on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
That that was the, the death blow already dealt out. The name Satan means accuser. And that's really Satan's only ultimate power is to accuse us before the justice of God. He does scream out against grace. Not that he cares about justice, but he's the one who does say, no, 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 sinners deserve hell. Look at the sin of John. He has done this and this and this. God, you must judge him. That's why Colossians 2.14 is such a beautiful description of Christ's victory. That he overcame Satan saying, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's terms of Satan and demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He took the record of debt. He took the only thing that Satan really had against us and nailed it to the cross. He wiped it clean. He paid the price that we had to pay. So there's nothing left that stands. God can say, yeah, justice was paid. I paid it. But even that's not the end. Jesus will return. And on that day, uh, Satan will be bound for a thousand years as Christ rules on this earth. And after that time, he'll be released and will mount one last rebellion. Revelation 20 tells what will happen. Starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, ate them up. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yahweh will have his victory, and his victory will be complete. Yes, Pharaoh had his day. Yes, we live in a world that is, that is tormented and tortured by evil and sin. And even in our own lives, we, we alternate between between justifying sin in our own minds as we're tempted by sin and running after it, and then on the other hand, feeling so burdened with and overwhelmed with guilt and shame that we ought to leave at the cross and not bear on our own. But victory is coming. Earth and evil will be completely destroyed. Christ will reign supreme and unchallenged in eternity in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no darkness. There is no chaos. There is no evil. So first and foremost, you have to ask, whose team am I on? Can you say with confidence, I'm a child of God. I'm an an Israelite and not an Egyptian. I'm one who has been rescued out of that slavery of sin and, and made one of God's children, not one who is at home in Egypt, who belongs to this world. Anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The victory of Christ is only for those who are in Christ. Those who have turned from sin and trusted in him as their Savior. And following after him through the waters of baptism and into a life of joyful obedience who are declaring God is more glorious than things of this world. Now we don't do it perfectly, we struggle and wrestle with that, but that's our heart. And he welcomes all who will come. Come. Come to me. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Leave Egypt and come as a child of God. And if you have, then we ought to live in, in this unshakable confidence. Take this suffering and trials and temptation and torment of sin in this life and the constant battle and the pain and suffering that's all around us and put them into perspective of this final victory. It's coming. 
God rules over Pharaoh. He rules over every earthly power that would oppose him today. And one day they will be brought to an end. They will be put to shame and we will stand in confidence with Christ. And God rules over every evil, every sinful stronghold. And he will have his victory and his victory will be complete. Let's pray. Father, You are overwhelming, astounding in your goodness and grace. God, as we see your wrath poured out on Pharaoh over the next weeks, as we contemplate your justice and what it demands for us as sinners, Lord, overwhelm us with a bigger view of your grace and your glory. And as this world cries out for our attention, and we're so torn, God, you know we're torn. Our hearts are prone to wander. We're so captivated by the physical things of this world, by the pleasures that are here. But you're better. Your grace is greater, and all those things that oppose you, that that would seek to, to compete for your glory, will one day be destroyed. Lord, I pray that there would be none here today who would be destroyed along with it. That all might hope in you. God, that, that we would cry out to you for grace, for mercy. That we would seek after you. That we would forsake ourselves, forsake the promises of this world. And taste and see that you are good. God, that that would define our lives. That we would live through the temptations and the trials and the suffering of sin with absolute confidence that you will have victory and your victory will be final and we will one day be with you in a place with no sin, with no death, with no tears. And the Lord will be our light. Oh God, we long for that day. Give us a bigger vision now of your grace and your glory that we might live for that day. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.